Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. We are now into the beginning of budget talks down at Hamilton City Hall. This, for many of you, admittedly, is about as exciting as watching your paint dry on your house. I get that. But it's really important to you, even if you don't really want to sit there and watch in person or on YouTube, because it can be very dry. But it's really, really important because this is going to determine your taxes, not only this year, in perpetuity. These things matter. Uh, One guy who has been watching these already and writing about it. He is, his name is John Best. He's the publisher of the Bay Observer. He joins us now. John, how are you? Just great. Thanks, Scott. Have you, uh, have you taken to drinking yet to make it through these, uh, <laughs> these talks? They, they have moments, but there are times when boy, oh boy, it is, uh, it is some dry, dry slogging. Well, I'll accept any excuse to drink, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> I, no, I've been watching it and, uh, um, you know, it, it, what is what is definitely different this year, Scott, is uh, they they uh, had a whole day. Council has not actually started talking about the budget yet. Uh, yesterday was given over to, I, I think, close to 50 people, each getting five minutes to talk about the budget. And if I compare it to previous years, usually when you had these public delegations, you get one or two uh, talking about the rate of increase. But most of the delegates in previous years were people that were looking for money, uh, looking for, you know, a continuing support for their program, et cetera, et cetera. This year, the vast majority of the presenters were, were really scolding council uh, uh, about the size of the increase and people saying that they're thinking of actually moving out of town and, and so on. So, this is uh, the tone of the public uh, feedback on this year's budget is is a big uh, contrast from what we've normally seen here. Well, and, and I think that there is reason for that. I don't even think, I, I know there's reason for that. And one of the big ones is not only was last year at 5.8 much higher than we had seen for, I don't know when the last, I can't remember if there ever was a 5.8. Now it's 7.9. This budget says next year it is scheduled to be 7.7%, but that's without before they even add in anything, and then 6.4. We're looking with this term of council potentially raising our taxes by something like 28% in just four years. There's reason I think people are freaking out. Yeah, when you get into like 28% and compare it to where you, where you started, you're, you're now looking at, you're, you know, you're into four figures of, of increase and uh, given the the number of seniors we have in the city that are homeowners and taxpayers, uh, you know they don't see their pensions increasing by that amount. So there there's real concern that uh, costs are going up and incomes are not, and uh, that's a very a very real concern uh, for this council. If, if I, I hope some of them, I know some of them are concerned about it, but. I think some others are just hoping that the noise will go away. What what would your odds be? And this is an unfair question because I, you know, asking odds, it's it's a hyperbole or it's a hypothetical. But what would you say the odds are that when this whole thing is done, that the number is not seven point nine percent? That they really find some savings, and even let's even give them a one percent, that it's under seven percent. What do you think the chances are, or do you think this is where we're going to be? 
Well, it's as you say, it's a bit of a mugs game, but I, I would guess it it will come down uh, by by some amount. But I I think here's the problem, Scott. They've already indicated how much money they're going to pull out of reserves, and it's it's uh, over the next two or three years. We're we're talking almost uh, two hundred million dollars is going to be pulled out of reserves. There's going to be I forget six or nine reserve accounts are going to be completely uh, depleted and and shut down. So if it is going to get any lower, it's actually going to have to be at the expense of something that's on the sheet uh, for approval right now. In other words, they can't go back to reserves and say, oh, we need to hike that by a little more. So I think they've gone as far as they can in in the reserve thing, which uh, even counts, even staff, when they they put the report together and, you know, they with a strong mayor situation, uh, you know, really uh, staff are even less able to shape uh, the look of the budget than they were before. But they did warn. They said, you know, when you dip into reserves, you're you're reducing our flexibility in the future, uh, either to meet a real emergency or to take advantage of some opportunity. So, you know, it's um, it's not a pretty sight, and um, we'll, we'll just have to see who the grown-ups are in the room, I guess. Today, John, there was a, um, a move to try and protect residents, protect renters, protect tenants um, from renovations and other things. This is, this is one that there was pretty much unanimity around the table, which doesn't always happen, but there was a, a pretty strong show of unanimity on these particular moves. Yeah, there was, Scott. Um, they were um, in a very self-congratulatory mood, um, and just about everybody agreed with it. Um, they've they've really passed two bills. Uh, one is uh, to force landlords who issue what they call an N13. So that's the notice that you give a tenant when you want them to vacate the property so you can fix it up. And, and that's what is now called rental evictions. Um, that one doesn't probably have the kind of teeth that people were hoping. Um, basically, it will force the landlord to um, take out a building permit to do the renovations within seven days of issuing the statement. And there's some other stuff about informing the tenants of their rights, but you know they really there's not much. Uh, you know they they can't materialize apartments out of thin air and. Uh, especially at the at the rates they were paying. Um, the other one is a, a licensing program that will force uh, landlords of any size to to uh, get a license, uh, which will provide some revenue for the city, but it'll also allow the city to um, you know knock on doors and and actually inspect properties and make sure that they're safe and suitable for living. But as I sat there and watched them, you know, sort of congratulating each other, I, I just couldn't help think about the fact of how many of them have played such a significant role in this gold rush, this LRT gold rush that has destroyed so much of the affordable housing in wards one through five. Uh, I mean, for years, I lived in the in in ward three for for many many years, and I don't think apartment rents uh, went up more than you know, 10% in, you know, in 10 years, it was only after 
the LRT, uh, when, when they actually put some money to the LRT, that suddenly you had all this uh, rental evictions and rents doubling. And that's all happened in the last uh, literally uh, three, three and a half years. The laws of unintended it, consequences, eh? Because the, the LRT, one of the big selling features was this is going to create all this affordable housing for people. That was one of the main points of this. Yeah. And, you know, if you look at this housing crisis, which is really serious, and you look at the financial um, crisis with the city, I, I you know, I, this is total blasphemy uh, to some ears, but I think it's time to get serious about a plan B with LRT. And uh, what I'm thinking of is uh, a theme that I've hit on before, Scott, which is bus rapid transit. You know, London, Ontario, right now, we're getting 14 kilometers, we think, for 3.7 billion, but I don't think good anybody luck. believes it's no, going to luck. end up at that. London is getting 30 kilometers of bus rapid transit for $381 million. So the thought I had was, what if we went back to Doug Ford and said, look, we're here to help you. Uh, instead of giving us 1.7 billion, why don't you give us the 1 billion that you said we could use if we didn't want LRT? And why don't we go to Trudeau with a similar offer and say, look, you guys matched the, the province. How about matching that? That would give us $2 billion. And then let's do a, a really robust BRT, uh, higher order transit. Uh, there's an Institute for Transportation Development. The state says, frankly, it doesn't make much difference whether it's BRT or LRT. If it's economic uplift you're looking at, if it's development, you're still going to get it. Uh, there's There was a Cleveland line, a Euclid, uh, between Cleveland and Euclid, uh, straight BRT, and it created $5.8 billion in development. So why not look at something like that? Do I think it'll happen? No. That was going to be I'm, my next question, John. Like, do you think that there's any chance that after all of this, that some councillors would even remotely entertain it? I would be very hard pressed to imagine that. Well, uh, I don't think what I'm thinking though, is that we, you know, as, as the situation sort of unfolds further, we don't know where we're going on the fiscal front. We don't know whether the province and the feds uh, frankly, are going to be able to come through with their end of the deal. Um, you know, the project in Hamilton seems to have stagnated. Um, there's not a move towards any kind of procurement yet. We've talked about that before. All I'm saying is that, you know, there there is actually an opportunity here to uh, make a major transit improvement and and with with some skill and i'm not you know this city is not in the best odor with uh, either senior government quite frankly uh you know we've got a council that, that wants the rcmp to investigate um the the housing minister at, at the same time as they're down there asking him for money so you know uh, there, there's still a lot of balls in the air and i think if there was some creativity um, we might be able to come up with a solution here that uh, that would really make a difference in Hamilton. Uh, we only have a minute, but there's one other thing that I might suggest that would be even easier than that as we're getting back, because this you brought that up as stemming from the housing issue. Uh, we had an example very recently of a housing, an apartment building that a builder wanted to build, and it was a lack of trees, among other things, that had that one shot down. M- maybe... 
we don't need to have perfection right now. We simply need to have units. Well, I agree. And in the case of that that unit, they were looking at a picture that he supplied, but they, you know, I talked to the the proponents and they admitted, look, that was just something we pulled out of a out of a catalog, uh, you know, of course, the design and, and some of these other issues uh, were still open for negotiation, but they were kind of treated like they were crooks. Yeah, no, it's um, it, that one. Again, I understand that it would be lovely that everything always would be perfect, but you've allu- you've used the word that how serious it is, and it is, and it is a crisis with housing. And to me, not everyone's going to agree, but to me, John, if any opportunity to get housing built that would be available to people at reasonable rates, I don't care if you want to paint the thing pink and polka dotted, just build it. We'll figure out the details later. We can try and make it better later, but get the units built. That, that seems the most, that's the simplest thing in the world to me. Drop the ideology and sit down with the people that can make it happen. Mm. It's a hundred percent. I agree with you a hundred percent. That is John Best. Read about, if you want to read more about this uh, tenant protection measure, John has a great piece right now at the Bay Observer, bayobserver.ca. You can get more about that there. Uh, These negotiations at council, I don't know if that's the right word, negotiation talks, discussions, budget meetings, uh, they go on for days and days and days. We'll have lots of talk about that and what they do or don't do with savings and otherwise later on. John Best, thank you for doing this. My pleasure. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. During the World Economic Summit meeting and other talks in Davos, Switzerland this week, there has been talk about something called Disease X. Now, Disease X does not exist. Disease X is not, as I understand it, my next guest can correct me if I've got that wrong, but Disease X does not exist right now. It is essentially a placeholder for what will be the next great pandemic. And when I say great, I don't mean, wow, great. I mean, like huge. What will be the next big pandemic? And so this is making plans. This is studying what we should do in the event or the inevitability that this next one comes along. But that last one, that last word, that inevitability, which is one of the things that seems to be mentioned here, that seems to me to be an interesting word because it was a long time since the last great pandemic. Is it really an inevitability within our generation or a couple generations that we should be preparing for disease X and expecting that it will arrive? Dr. Don Bowdish is executive director of the Firestone Institute for Respiratory Health and a prof at the Department of Medicine at McMaster University. Uh, Dr. Bowdish, thank you for doing this. Thanks so much for having me on. I was trying uh, earlier in the day to remember with someone else prior to COVID, what was the last worldwide pandemic? And I don't know, was it smallpox? Is that what is considered the last worldwide one? Well, believe it or not, 2009, 2010, we had an H1N1 pandemic. That didn't hit Canada particularly hard, but it did. It was global enough that it was considered a pandemic. Now, again, nowhere near the scale of what we've just lived through, um, but it was on the sort of knife's edge for a little that, while. We that, weren't 100% sure if it was going to end up being really, really disruptive. That was swine then, flu, right? That's H1N1. That was swine flu. Yeah, That's okay, exactly yeah. right. That was okay. swine flu. And, you know, there have been a couple knife's edge moments since then. So we had SARS-1, and in 2003, this hit Canada. 
um, particularly. So we actually have had our own exercise of trying to imagine what having another SARS outbreak would look like. And, and despite having done that, so we still were sort of hit by COVID. Um, in other parts of the world, we've had Ebola outbreaks, um, other viruses like MERS, which was a relative of the uh, coronavirus. And currently, there's massive, massive die-offs of wildlife from influenza. And so this is one that people are really watching carefully because should it transmit to humans, we could expect another COVID-like um, a disruption or pandemic. So is it then, would you use the word inevitability that, that in, w- even within our lifetime or within a generation or within a reasonable period of time, is it inevitability that there will be another pandemic? I think so. And our world is changing. So these pandemics almost always come from close contact uh, from animals and then they jump over to humans and should they infect. And so for each of the uh, SARS-1, MERS, uh, Ebola, uh, Nipah, all those viruses, uh, SARS-CoV-2, all seem to have jumped over from animals. So the thing that's changing is we're having more climate disruption. So we're having humans and animals living closer together. We're having uh, climate change again, cause people to be poor and often have to do things in many parts of the world like hunt uh, and eat uh, meat from, from game animals, living closer with bats, the live animal trade. And so those really close contacts give lots of opportunities for pathogens to jump into humans. And if we look, like I said, there's been a few nice edge moments in the past uh, 15 years. Um, and I mean, I think we will see in our lifetime another jump over. Hopefully it won't be as disruptive as COVID, but really no guarantee. But if we don't know, the, uh, to me, one of the tricky things, and I, you're the expert, not me on this, mm-hmm. but if we don't know what the thing is, how do we actually prepare for it? And I mean, I'll use the example that even when we got COVID at the beginning of this, there were lots of examples at the very beginning where leading experts were giving advice that turned out to not be right. And yeah. because we didn't know yet what we were exactly dealing with. So how do you, how do you prepare for a virus or a, a, a something like this if we don't know what it is? Mm-hmm. We can, this is a really important point. And, and Canada did screw up because we did have a warning shot for COVID that we ignored. So when the SARS pandemic in two, or SARS outbreak, the first SARS in 2003 hit, there were all sorts of recommendations about protecting our long-term care sector, about how we should run infectious disease units in hospitals, none of which were implemented. And so it really was a bit of a shame on us that we weren't a little bit more prepared. And coming out of COVID, at least we have a sense of the things we don't know and should have known. So the whole masking issue, I think, is something that won't be quickly forgotten. We'll move to masks a lot more quickly in the next pandemic. Um, Other things that we really needed to know and didn't have information on were, if you remember the early days of COVID, you could be walking around and infectious for five days or more and not have any symptoms. And Mm. that led to a lot of spread. So because we can make some educated guesses about the families of virus, get an influenza virus and their SARS-type virus, um, perhaps an Ebola-type virus, we can start to say, what don't we know about these viruses and what should we prioritize to figure out before next time? And those things like how long a person's contagious for, how, uh, how long they can carry it, what kind of organs it attacks, how does it spread in uh, say long-term care homes or congregate living. These are all questions that we we can get answers for in advance and also understanding uh, for related viruses, how can we build vaccines quickly? 
because we were so lucky (laughs) with our success with this uh, virus and it may not be the case next time. One of the things, and I don't know that you would be an expert in this, but one of the areas that it seemed there was a real challenge to deal with was politics. And I don't Mm -hmm. mean party politics. I mean, things like when experts were saying you should shut down your airports and not allow people who have been in the hot spot to come to your country, the initial response was, well, that's racist or that's not, Mm -hmm. you know, and it will require, I would think someone to say, I don't care if you think that this is unfair or politically incorrect or something, we have to do this. I just wonder if the example that we've had gives us the impetus for someone to stand up and do that if there's another one. I love how you brought this up because, you know, I'm a scientist and I think about vaccines and immunology and and have a high trust in science. And if there's one thing I've learned is understanding the people aspect, the politics aspect, the economics aspect of the things we would have to do to protect ourselves. I and many of my colleagues have been watching this H1N1 that's killing so many wild animals and could jump to humans. And I can't help but to think if it were to jump over today, we are in a situation where we don't have a lot of trust. Politicians are very hesitant because it's unpopular to make the difficult decisions that you've described. And uh, and I don't know, actually, even having just come through COVID, if we'd be that much better off, because we still don't understand how to have trust and, you know, what should we do with around social media and misinformation? And how do we teach people to understand probabilities? How do we balance economics with uh, health? Those sorts of questions are ones that we'll need to know for that next pathogen X, whatever it might be. We have only a few seconds left here. Um, Over the last number of years, there have been many efforts made, uh, including U.S. intelligence agencies and others, to find the absolute cause or the starting point for COVID, whether it was in a lab or whether it was a wet market or something else. And even the, U, even the American intelligence agencies now say, we think we know, but we can't rule out certain things. Reading a story in the New York Post today, Chinese lab crafts mutant COVID-19 strain with a 100% kill rate in, quote, humanized mice. And the story is all about there are scientists there working on trying to replicate, or I'm not even sure exactly what they're trying to do. Are we at the point now, having been through what we've been through, that there should be rules banning scientists from playing around with things like this everywhere in the world because of the possibility, whether we believe it came from a wet market or a lab, because of the possibility of seeing what could happen if something like this gets out? Should we be, should the world be cracking down on stuff like this? Yeah, I would, um, I would be cautious. So I could kill humanized mice with a common cold strain or an influenza strain. They're pretty easy to kill. So I, I think, you know, part of this comes to the crafting of that headline. Um, and, and I do think that we do have really high standards for containment and these sorts of things, not to say that accidents can happen because of course they do. And I do think that most uh, countries in the world do respect certain rules about what we call gain of function experiments where you make something uh, more dangerous than it was uh, naturally. And oftentimes we don't really see the value of doing that sort of research as providing good data. So I worry when I see headlines like this that there's maybe a little bit of um, emphasis on getting, you know, fear-inducing clickable headlines as opposed okay. to really thoughtful reporting. And I'm less concerned than probably that headline would would uh, make you think. 
Uh, Dr. Don Bowdish, Executive Director of the Firestone Institute for Respiratory Health and a professor in the Department of Medicine at McMaster University. Always love having you on. Thanks for taking time. Thanks so much for having me. Take care. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. We have heard, moving along here, we have heard that there are a lot of people who do not know how to handle money. And this is not an insult against you if you're not great with money. This isn't a shot at Gen Z because we always hear that Gen Z doesn't know how to handle money and avocado toast and all that kind of stuff. This is not pointing a finger at anyone in particular. It is, I think, widely accepted that we have probably created a couple generations of people who, because we've never really taught it, are probably many of them not really good at handling money. And then when we get into a situation like we are now, where things are tough, where, you know, your mortgage payments are going up and taxes are going up and costs of everything are going up. If you don't know how to handle money, if you're not good with money, boy, you can find yourself in a tough spot really, really, really quickly. Now, a couple of years ago, maybe a year, a couple of years ago, I'm not even sure I've lost track. The Ontario government announced that it was bringing financial literacy into the classroom. Thank goodness. I could not tell you because I don't work in a school. I, I couldn't tell you, and maybe my next guest can, but I couldn't tell you how much of this is actually being taught. I know it's part of the curriculum now, but is it do we believe that kids who graduate from high school suddenly are fully financially literate or have they had a sprinkling of financial literacy as part of their learning? Well, my next guest has written a new book to try and help people deal with this. Now, you'll know her name, not from necessarily writing books on financial literacy. Uh, Karen Cumming has been a CHCH reporter. She has almost been an astronaut to Mars, true story. Uh, And now she is author of The Wealthy Martian, an out-of-this-world guide to financial literacy for parents, teens, and other earthlings. Master your basics, master your mind, master your drips. She joins me now. Karen, how are you? I'm great, Scott. Thanks so much for inviting me to be on the show tonight. Well, look, this is, to me, one of the most important things that, as a society, I believe we have failed miserably at doing. Scott, there couldn't be a better time in history for us to be concerned about uh, teaching our children how to manage money than now. And I spent more than 16 years in the school system in Hamilton. And as far as I'm concerned, it is virtually non-existent financial literacy education. Uh, You mentioned that the Ontario government um, supposedly introduced it into the curriculum a couple of years ago. If it's there, it's there in a minuscule fashion. I mean, occasionally uh, you'll, you'll hear people who teach career classes might touch, you know, very um, sporadically on topics like budgeting or perhaps even credit cards, but in a very minor way. And uh, once in a while, you'll hear of a math teacher doing a a week-long unit on the stock market, but it's presented more as a game to see who can spend their imaginary money uh, on stocks and, and, you know, win at the end of the week because their their stocks have gone up the highest. In, In no way is it trying to teach kids how the stock market works or how they might participate in it in a meaningful way. So as far as I'm concerned, there is virtually no financial literacy education in in the school system anywhere. You know, and and this may be a bad comparison or a bad example, but 
schools have spent a lot of time, a lot of arguing, a lot of debating, a lot of effort teaching sex education. Now you're saying what sex education got to do with financial literacy? Well, the argument for that is this is something that kids are going to need to know because it's really important. And so I know it's one and one are not two. I know apples and oranges. But again, for something as important as this, you are going to need to know how to spend money, save money, collect money, use money for your entire life. It's always shocked me that there seems to be so little interest in this. Well, as far as I'm concerned, uh, there's a conspiracy theory that, that I like to point to, and I think there's a lot of validity to it. I mean, if the middle class understand money, there won't be any people to do the work. If you understand money and how to make it for yourself, you're not going to want to get a job in a factory or for that matter, even be a teacher or work at a hospital. You understand money. You you understand how to make some for yourself. Maybe you don't even have a job if you really understand dividends, which is a big part of uh, uh, the material that I cover in the book. Um, You know, that's something that as a kid, I was never taught in school the difference between interest and dividends, never mind how dividend paying stock works how I might be able to see my returns uh, compound exponentially over time. No one ever taught me anything like that. And I was a teenager 50 years ago, if you can believe that. And if I was, that means you were. And 50 years later, there is still no one teaching basic concepts of financial literacy in the school system. I honestly believe it's the people at the top who don't want the people in the middle to know too much. Well, Look, if we're going to get right down to it, if if we really learned about financial literacy, there would probably be many fewer coffee shops around because, you know, someone who's really financially literate, I hate to say this to the coffee shop people, probably are not looking to spend $7 on a coffee well, once guess or twice what? a day. I'm glad that you brought that up because I record a 30-second video for social media every morning on a different topic connected with the book. And this morning's topic had to do with uh, living beneath your means. And one way that you you could do that was to make your own coffee at home. Really? And I held okay. up a cup of coffee and suggested that it probably cost me about five cents to make in my own house, as opposed to standing in line at a fancy coffee shop and literally paying five or six or seven dollars for a cup of coffee. These are principles that are so common sense, but they're not being taught. So we see, you know, the younger generation thinking nothing of parting with a $10 bill for a cup of coffee and a snack every day. This is not how to live beneath your means. It's not the way to financial literacy, and it's certainly not the way to wealth. To be fair, uh, you know, a lot of people in younger generations have said, well, you people who already have homes and already have some savings, you point to us eating our avocado toast. But even if I don't eat out at a restaurant, the cost of housing is so high that I could never afford it anyway. So I may as well spend my money on things that I'm going to enjoy. But you know what, Scott, I would challenge that because I I hear stories, they're kind of like the unicorn stories, you know, a friend of mine will say, oh, my, uh, my son-in-law, you know, he's 30 years old and he's been saving his whole life and he's got $300,000 lined up to buy a house. 
It's possible. It's just that you have to have the guidance. You have to have somebody, either a parent, a loved one, a teacher, a school system who cares enough about you to teach you how it works. And we don't have, I mean, so many kids aren't privileged to, to be in that situation. And so they would say that, you know, let me enjoy my life and spend $10 on a piece of avocado toast. Well, that's a great strategy if you want to never have money. Yeah, I, well, look, it, your book, um, it, what I find really interesting about the book, and clearly, you know, if you look at the cover, you would say, oh, this is just a book for kids because it's, you know, it's like a cartoon picture of a Martian, but it's for parents and teens and others. There have been books, uh, Teresa, Teresa Cascioli, who used to run uh, Lakeport Brewery, I mean, very brilliant businesswoman. She put out a number of books on financial literacy geared towards young kids. This is sort of filling a different slot in that order that it's not just necessarily for really young kids. It's there are adults who are still really not sure about financial literacy. Oh, absolutely. And I talk about that at length. I mean, one of the the um, reasons why I felt so compelled to write this book was that I recently retired, officially retired from my teaching job. And anybody who's ever been in that position, I mean, it's a very daunting thing because you're not sure if it's all going to work out. You're not sure if there's going to be enough money until you you pull the trigger, until you take the leap. And once you're on the other side of it, it becomes crystal clear to you that we should be teaching financial literacy to every person on earth as young and as early as possible. And it's not happening. I mean, there's no way that people who are retiring in their early 60s should be doubtful about whether or not it's all going to be okay. We should be able to do this with supreme confidence because we've been trained in how to not only, um, you know, be aware of money issues, but also how to plan for building the reserve of money that we're all going to need to live off of once we truly decide that we don't want to work anymore. Karen, is this a, we live in a, in a consumption society right now. There's no question about that, but is this a generational thing that is learned? Because if you look back to our grandparents, maybe who went through the great depression, uh, I mean, my grandmother long gone now, but I remember when we would sit for dinner, maybe we'd have roast beef. She would eat all the, if there was any fat on it, because that's, you know, you had to, you had to save everything. You had to use everything. Our generation now, ours, I mean, two or three that exist now have not had to go through that. Is this a life experience thing as much as, as it is a learning thing? I believe that's true, uh, Scott, and I actually speak to that in the book. My, both of my parents lived through the Depression and World War II. And there was a saying in our house that uh, our, our mom taught us, and that was waste not, want not. Uh -huh. And that's because when they were little in their own family homes, I mean, my mom grew up wrapping pieces of string into a ball, saving tin foil. Um, you know, later in life when she had her kids, she actually asked us after Christmas was over to take the tinsel off the tree and put it back in the box for next year. And we didn't even question this stuff. My mom clipped coupons. She saved milk bags. She saved the twist ties that went around the milk 
bags. She saved the bags that the milk bags came in. My mother wasted nothing. And it taught me such a lesson. And I really feel for the last couple of generations who have not gone through a period of hardship the way our parents and our grandparents did so that they could be taught some of these principles. And I, I'm bringing that back. I mean, we have to start with the basics. We really do. And, and uh, you know, I think I'd like to launch a campaign of billboards everywhere you look that say waste not want not because that's one of the ways that we're going to get through these very hard times that we're in right now. I I would never, I'm not going to lie, I don't want hardship in my life. I don't look for discomfort. I mean, I go to the gym, I suppose, so that's <laughs> looking for discomfort. But, you know, as a, as a general policy, I don't go out looking for things that is going to make my life less pleasant. But I do sometimes think that we miss out by not having hardship in the same way that if you're on a sports team and your team wins every game and you never have to learn about dealing with losing, you miss something in the experience that helps develop you as a person. It's so instructive, Scott. I mean, we, adversity teaches us so much. And if, if you're part of a generation that's never really faced real adversity so that you could learn some of the life skills and some of the principles that are really going to help you make it through, when that adversity does come knocking on your door, you're not prepared. Uh, I mean, through the whole time that I was writing this book, it took me a year. I spent all of last year working on it. And as I was doing it, I would go in to, um, to do part-time uh, teaching in schools. And I'd tell the kids about the book and I would do sort of an informal survey and just ask them point blank, do you feel that the school system has prepared you for life based on what it's taught you about money? And they would laugh. They would just say, of course not. I feel totally unprepared for life. And that's real opinions from real people that I spoke with. Yeah, well, I mean, you talk about adversity. How many times do we see the parents of exceptionally rich, the kids of exceptionally rich parents, famous people are screwed up and they've never had adversity. They're finally given all this money or they have all this money. And we look at them, we go, you're a mess. There's got to be some connection between never having to deal with anything difficult and that. Well, it skips a generation, right? You, you've got the wealthy parents and then the, the next generation of kids who aren't taught to respect money or to value it or, um, you know, to, to develop the discipline required to earn it and to, to understand how to best save it and invest it. And then they grow up and have kids. And, and very often those kids are the ones who turn around and emulate the grandparents. They, they do care about money. They do want to learn about it and, and uh, have an appreciation for it. I agree for sure. And, you know, I'll, I, I want to give credit to my wife because I am not, I, I need your book quite honestly, but my wife. I, I want you to get my book. I want you to read it and I want to sit down with you and, and talk with you about it. I absolutely will. My wife, thankfully, is great with money. I am not. I'm terrible with money. My wife is great with money. And a reason I bring this up is because one of the things that I have learned in recent years, thanks to her, is it takes a little bit of work, but it is amazing. And forgive me for people who are listening to this and are going to say, well, yeah, of course, you're, you're an idiot. How did you not know this? It is amazing with a little bit of work, how much money you can save just by looking for some coupons. Simple oh, thing. no question. As just as a start, like as one of the simplest things ever, you put in the extra few minutes and suddenly you get 
something for an awful lot less. And it's just one, I bring that up as one example of something that can make a difference, but it requires a little bit of effort, a little bit of work. Maybe you have to go to a second store to do your groceries, but man, it makes a difference. Uh, it's, it's not the big things that, that are the stepping stones to financial literacy. It's the little things like that. Cumulative habits that we all need to rewire our brains with so that we start thinking differently about money and we don't let it slip through our fingers. I mean, they're, they're, uh, in the first part of the book, uh, I, I talk about mastering your basics and I, I come out with, uh, or I came out with seven different basic principles of money management. And it, you know what, if you only did the first two, it would change the trajectory of your life. They are live beneath your means and pay yourself first. If you did those two things, it would rock your world. Mm. After that, write down your goals. What do you want in life, financially and otherwise? Build a budget. People are always so skittish about budgeting. They think it's nerdy. Budgeting is the foundation to the, the, your life. And if you learn how to do it and do it well, you can change your life in so, a heartbeat. So can Next, we rewire? Karen, can that? we rewire though? You said we need to rewire our brains. Can yes. we do that? Or are you, or do we just have people who are good with money and not good no, with money? No, I disagree. I, I don't think that we do have people who are just good with money and people who are not good with money. It's a question of um, neuroplasticity. I'm going to use that word of carving new pathways in your brain for your thoughts to travel down. And if you are receiving the right kind of education, it's not a tough thing to do. You just start thinking differently and that thinking differently soon enough becomes a habit. It really does. All right. We got to run, but we said off the top that there is allegedly some financial literacy being taught in schools. You've said right off the bat, you don't think there's enough of it. There's hardly any. I would I would challenge anyone to show me a meaningful piece of financial literacy education in the school system right now. So what should, like how much should there be? Should it be an entire course you have to take in grade 10 or grade 11? Or is it enough that it's spat, smattered through different courses all along? Like what should well, the answer I'll, be? I'll tell you, I mean, I don't think it's ever going to happen. And that's why I did this. I really feel compelled to take this information out into the world and to, to spend the rest of my life talking about it and teaching about it and uh, putting online courses um, uh, on the internet and uh, posting social media videos and talking about this book uh, to everyone, anyone who wants to listen. Uh, I don't think it ever will be introduced in the school system. I don't think there's the, uh, the political will to do it. Maybe we can hope maybe this is going to take off to such a degree that Karen Cumming will now be known as the wealthy Martian financial literacy person, not the Gilbert Gottfried interview person. <laughs> we you can... know what? I think Gilbert is up in heaven looking down on me and he's having such a good laugh. He's saying, you go girl, you get them. Yeah. And if people don't know what I'm talking about, uh, after we're done, go on YouTube and type in Karen Cumming and Gilbert Gottfried. And if you need to have a laugh, it's one of the all-time, we've, we've talked about another show before, one of the all-time great clips, but that's, that's for another day. That's for later on. Uh, Karen Cumming, the book is called The Wealthy Martian, an out-of-this-world guide to financial literacy for parents, teens, and other earthlings. Master your basics, master your mind, master your drips. Did I say, is it drips or DRIPs? It's available on Amazon right now. There you go. Uh, appreciate you doing this, Karen. Thank you. Thank you, Scott. That was a lot of fun. I enjoyed talking about it with you. 
The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.